Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I've got a whole bunch of events going on in the spring. Let me tell you about uh, a few of these. In particular, I want to highlight uh, a dialogue that Justin Lee and I are going to be having on March 10th in Los Altos, California at Spark Church. It's called Sexuality, Scripture, and the Soul. This is going to be a hopefully a very engaging, provocative hopefully thoughtful and very humble conversation between myself and Justin Lee. Um, Justin is a gay affirming Christian and author, a speaker. He's been, uh, well, he founded the Gay Christian Network, which has recently changed its name. He's been doing this stuff for many, many years. He's a thoughtful guy. He is a gracious guy. And I think he and I are going to have a great conversation. We also disagree rather significantly on some super important questions like the meaning of marriage and whether same-sex relationships are uh, intended by God to be um, a valid expression of sexuality or not. So uh, it's going to be a great event. Again, it's at Spark Church. If you go to www.sparkchurch.com forward slash sexuality scripture soul, uh, or if you just go to the Spark Church website, you can find the event page there, and you do have to sign up. Registration begins, I believe, tomorrow, I think it opens. Now, for my Patreon supporters, this event is completely free. So if you are a Patreon supporter or you want to be a Patreon supporter, then you can go to my Patreon page, and I have posted the access code for that free registration for the Justin Lee event on March 10th. Again, it's at Spark Church, so sparkchurch.com. I'm also going to be uh, in Edmonton, Cal- uh, Canada for the Breakforth One Conference January 25th, 27th. I'll be in Sioux City, Iowa for two events on February 4th, February 5th. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for a One Day Leaders Forum on February 7th. Orange County on February 11th and February 12th for two different events there. Seattle, Washington, March 12th. Salem, Oregon, March 14th. Cleveland, Ohio, April 23rd. And I'll be at the Q Conference in Nashville on April 24th, 26th. So check out my website, PrestonSpringle.com or CenterForFaith.com and go to the events page for uh, information on one of these e- one of these events or all these events. If you want to attend them all, you want to go on tour, come on tour with me, then that'd be, you'd be hearing a lot of the same stuff over and over, but hey, it'd be fun to hang out. So com, the events page, check it out. Okay, for today's podcast, I have my good friend and somebody that I just admire so much, uh, and that is pastor, author, Dr. Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson is a pastor. He's a scholar. Uh, he's been pastoring for a number of years in the UK. He's an incredibly thoughtful guy. He's a podcaster. He's a blogger. And I am so excited to have Andrew on the show. We talk a lot about the charismatic gifts. He is, again, one of the most thoughtful guys I've ever met. So I, I think he gives one of, if not the best sort of defenses of a continuationist position, namely that the, all the gifts uh, are for today. And I think he, he lives it out in a really great way. He knows about some of the abuses that are going on in those circles, and yet he's not willing to set aside scripture because some good things have been abused. So please welcome to the show, back by popular demand, Dr. Andrew Wilson. (laughs) 
Okay, we are back on Theology in the Raw. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am here, as you have just heard, with my good friend uh, from a distance, Dr. Andrew Wilson. Andrew, thank you so much for being on Theology in the Raw for the second time. Thank you so much. Did you do you call yourself Dr. Preston Sprinkle? I, I, I do I not. I never no. ever called him Dr. Anything. It <laughs> makes me feel like a Star Trek character. I know, right? Well, but you know, my kids remind me, you know, Daddy, you're not a real doctor, you know, because yeah, I don't, I, know. I can't, I can't heal their illnesses or whatever. I'm like, no, well, I'm... I don't know, I could, I could pray over you, you know. <laughs> it is something like that. I get that all the time. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah. So generally avoid it. But yeah, it's good to be with you. So let's just dive in. Give us a little bit of background about yourself. I mean, uh, you're a pastor. You're a scholar. You're obviously British. <laughs> but give, give us a background. Who you? And, and I guess how about this? Why, why don't we bend your testimony toward your uh, just that 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 uh, vocational calling that you have of being both a scholar and a pastor? But mm. you know, we'd love to kind yeah. of tease that out a little bit. But yeah, yeah who is so Andrew I, Wilson? So I um I was. I was brought up in a Christian family and I, I think I'd never, a classic thing of not really ever knowing a time when I didn't believe in God, but very backslidden as a teenager and at university in particular. And then in my last year at university, Cambridge started coming back to God. At the same time, I switched my degree to theology from history. So I got into the sort of academic side of it, which I didn't really understand in my first year, in one year of doing it and got a degree from Cambridge in it, which makes it look like you understand it, but I didn't really. Yeah. And then soon after leaving Cambridge, I started reading a lot more theology and started getting into it and begin to go, oh, I, I kind of get this. But uh, and then did a master's and then wondered whether it might perhaps be the kind of thing that I should do as a career. And actually had a very clear, I don't know how, where all of your listeners are on prophetic words, but it was one of those very, at least in yeah. our kind of context, very charismatic context. What I regard as a very clear prophetic word about not pursuing academia and instead pursuing pastoral ministry, at least at that time. So I did and became a sort of a junior pastor in a large-ish, in British context, large-ish church, which I then grew up in and, and yeah. sort of grew in the role and was then a pastor there in a town called Eastbourne, which is on the south coast of Britain um, for about, that was just over sort of 10 years. And then I started doing my PhD studies in my 30s while doing that. So I did a bit of part and part and published a bit on that and did some more academic like research along with being a pastor but yeah. with quite a narrow focus, actually. And I found because I've been in large churches my whole ministry, you can have quite a specialized teaching role and still be able to write stuff and so on. Yeah. And then two and a half years ago, I made a move to be teaching pastor of a church in London, which is where I'm speaking from now, uh, which is a, a sort of quite a large multi-site uh, church in Lewisham, which is sort of, and Greenwich, which is Southeast London, um, and a completely different kind of environment there, which has been fantastic for me. But I continue to do about half my time teaching and with a little bit of pastoral stuff within the church and then half my time is writing speaking and some yeah. academic stuff actually in the wider world which is how i guess that's how you and i know each other probably sure that, yeah uh, that sort of world. we so, connected yeah it's been I, half and half ever since really. i don't know i think we connected maybe on social media i think I it was i think it was i think it was there and then we've done so i mean i've been i've spoken at your church and and we've yeah. hung out uh in eastbourne Walked along those cliffs. What the, what's that area? That was one of the most beautiful. We just 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 oh, two you, days ago. Come, beachy oh, head. It is just glorious. Beachy Anybody head. who's listening to this, and you get to go to oh, Britain, God, and you just like yeah. the, the white, the chalk cliffs, the rolling hill. It's just yeah. glorious, isn't it? Really lovely. Just, just two days ago, my whole family was talking about. Now my kids were like, "What was that that, that place in, in in England? It was the cliffs, and it was on the south yeah. of the coast." And like, oh yeah, that oh was, yeah, your that wife was mentioned highlight. it on the email she sent as well. I was like, man, this has obviously <laughs> made an impression. 
So, yeah, oh, so awesome. So you, you don't live in Eastbourne anymore. Cause I, when I, when I well, last talked to you I, two and a half years I ago, do. you were commuting. I, I have a strange model. So I, <laughs> so this is not, I'm not now all of your Baptist friends are going to be freaking out here because of <laughs> how does this work with congregational membership? Um, yeah. I'm in a very, I'm pretty much the only person I know who does this, but I live in Eastbourne, which is about 60 miles away. And I commute up on Tuesdays and Sundays, but that's okay. based out of our personal context because our, our two of our children have, as you know, two of our kids have special needs. And it made the move for the whole family to the part of London I'm now serving in beyond us at that point. Okay. And we concluded it was the best thing was to take the, take the job, to do the role. And it was a great opportunity in lots of ways. It's been really right. good. Um, but on a Sunday, me and my family are in, usually in different churches. I preach in Eastbourne another 12 times a year as well. So it's not as weird as it sounds. Ah. But it is uh, my main role is in, work in the church is in a different town. From where my family goes. So your family is still established in the in the Eastbourne Church, and you yeah. you go up and kind of commute. Okay, okay. That that's actually not as foreign in, in the American context. I mean, you, 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 <laughs> you sound like a mega church. You sound like a celebrity preacher. Yeah, that <laughs> that kind of flies in and flies out. No. Um, but so your your church in London, though, it's a multi. Would you describe it as a as a primarily black congregation or a multi ethnic? Yeah, yeah. Or so we're about, yeah. probably about seven seventy percent would be. So about, we're about a third African, a third Caribbean or Black British, and a third white or other. That's basically the mix. Oh wow! Um, and it's which reflects the borough, like where we are in London. So sure. it would be, if Americans have been, it's probably not quite the same, but it's a bit like as an area, it's a bit like Anacostia in DC, but probably okay. not quite as you know, not quite. Our cities are a bit more. Um, white and black live alongside each other a lot in british cities which is not always true in my experience of america yeah. so probably a little bit less like that than perhaps in dc but not dissimilar um yeah. or you know maybe a little bit like a harlem or something but not quite as much as that but it's that sort of equivalent in london so it's a very um you know a very predominantly black area and the church i guess reflects the borough and it's been a fantastic experience for me because it's just a very eye-opening really in terms of moving from a, a really quite different context and it's something i've had to learn and I'm still like just this afternoon in the room I'm sitting in now, we were having a, you know, extended conversation with a number of our sort of white and black pastors talking about some of these issues. How do we help yeah. people joining from the black church better? It was a, it's a yeah. very regularly, you know, pressing and important issue for us. It's very exciting actually as well. What are some of the unique challenges you're facing as a pastor in a, in a multi-ethnic church like that? Uh, I'm curious if, they, if it's similar to yeah. what American context would face. Um, or if it's so different I think, I think there are there are loads, and I think it is very different from the you know the American context is obviously very different. Um, so I, I wouldn't presume to know much about that. Um, but I think the, the, the I, obviously the lived experience and to some degree just the legacy of what's happened what's happened in race relations in the last five hundred years, to be honest, and how it's washed through into in, into our country in Britain, um, and effectively what. You know, I'm sitting in a room with people thinking, oh, well, this is what my ancestors did to your ancestors. That just complicates every con yeah. conversation about these issues anyway. Right. But I think in our context, um, that's obviously probably not dissimilar to someone that would be in the States, that the, the implications that continues to have for the social background, the you know, relationship to authority figures and police and all that sort of stuff. It is not, I don't think it's quite the same as it is in the right. States, but it is you know, the injustices faced by the, the obstacles to overcome for almost every black person in Britain are just greater than those for almost every white person in Britain, all other things being equal. And obviously there are some very, you know, 
rich and wealthy and privileged and well-educated black people, and there are some very poor and marginalized and oppressed white people, but generally speaking, the gap is still significant. And okay. I think working through how that works, how you address that well with the gospel without being divisive, but how you don't sweep it under the rug either and act right. as if it's not there because now we're all one. And navigating that is just, I think as yeah. in that sense, it's a, the same challenge that would be throughout the Western world. But in our context, particularly in London, it's just very visible. And it's, but it's also a great joy because we've just got a huge number of people who are committed to, as you said, I mean, we have 1,500 people on a Sunday or something, a thousand wow. of them look different from me yeah. and, or more. And there's just a huge amount of commitment and goodwill and actually sacrifice in that sense for just for me being a teaching pastor to preach, mm. preach to people, many of whom have historically for good reason associate people like me with things that are not always very good. And their goodwill and commitment to work and you know find a way forward is just is very humbling and very powerful um so it's it's not like it's not all challenge it's very beautiful as well but it it is you know we are i guess just daily aware with that and really my own ignorance is probably the biggest challenge (laughs) you get to face isn't it yeah you go i don't i don't know what this is like and i'm I'm having to learn so well the fact that you're willing to admit that i mean that's pretty huge right there i mean it's it's a person that thinks they have it all figured out or or he's even blind i mean you, you even made a comment that you know, you, you show up at church and, and with this awareness that my ancestors did this to your ancestors. And a lot of people just don't have that awareness. <laughs> right? Well, and I so, guess, but I'm not sure I did. You see, so I think hmm. what I've, one of the things I've been really arrested by is uh, the extent to which being in a, in a, in a church like mine now, you can't hide it. You can't get away from it. It's just, it's really right. obvious and people are lovely about it, but it's really obvious. But of course I didn't, I didn't, live i didn't think i knew it it was in the vague background but i just didn't think this was an important issue when i was serving in a church in a more middle class white town and i think for me that's one of the challenges i realize is you know adapting to that when it's not being forced upon you by your circumstances but it's just something you realize is part of loving your neighbor and that could sound all very kind of all very fashionable and stuff but i i just think it's a really it's it, in our context it, and in the UK, it's a very pressing issue and probably only become more so in the last two or three years, yeah. partly because some of the things, a lot of the things that happen in your country yeah. come across to mind in the sense of people's right. awareness of them and those dynamics, partly because of Brexit, partly because of Trump. There are various other things yeah. in the background that make that issue probably more pressing now than it was five years ago by some way. And I, yeah. I just, I, I, fa- I feel like I'm catching up all the time. I found, I mean, it, I, I think, well, let me just say it and then I'll <laughs> clarify or correct it after. <laughs> Whether but... or not you think it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, it's see, in my experience, and so, you know, obviously I'm American, but I lived in the UK for a number of years and have visited a few times. It, it seems like you, you guys, you all, <laughs> are, are at least more sensitive to race issues than Americans on the whole are. Like, if you were to kind of weigh it, if, if I could say explicit kind of racism and also, you know, deep concern for racism, like, like, you know, it seems like you would have more of that in the UK, but both kind of a concern to like be, not be racist and also an awareness of, of, of race. It just, the, the racist roots just don't seem as, as, as deep as they are in America. Now, maybe I'm totally speaking out of turn. This is just my sort of yeah, perception. I, I think it, do, you, do you feel I, like I, you can speak to that or? It's very difficult to generalize about two countries of the scale that ours are sure i guess the i i might map it in a slightly more complicated way so i suppose if you had a spectrum from 
very heightened awareness, you would hope awareness and sensitivity through to, you know, it's almost explicit racism at the other end. And then people, a lot of people in the middle not really think about it that much. Okay. But I think probably what you might find is that America was at the outer ends of that spectrum. So you have, there's much yeah. more, you know, there would be no equivalent of uh, a state flag with a Confederate flag on it or anything right. remotely like that, right? We would, right. There's, there's nothing of that nature that would, you wouldn't get away with that in Britain at all. But at the same time, I think a lot of people in the States, particularly from some, you know, there's large parts of the States where probably people are a lot more aware. And so I've got a you know, close American friend who lived with our family for two years. And he said he really struggled when he heard pastors talking about processing the issue of race in Britain, that he felt we were way less aware than really? he would have expected us to be okay. given an American education. But I think that's partly because of where he was from. I think what he's saying and what you might see in another part of the nation are both, in, are both true. Okay. It's like, yeah. Because America is so big and so diverse that yeah. things could be simultaneously completely true in some of one part and totally untrue in another. And I feel like Britain might yeah, get true. more in the middle of that spectrum. And actually, okay. even as we're talking, there's a huge you know, race row in the country at the moment because of a racial abuse that was held at a footballer the other day. And it's... Okay it's brought all kinds of things out into the open and okay. basically most of my black friends going yeah this is still a huge issue this is live all the time and obviously a lot of white people going no that's old that's old we don't have that anymore that's not an issue i don't mm. you know what i mean i don't use yeah. obvious explicit racism and so in a way i think probably americans are both more aware and possibly less aware depending on where they are and what their context and backstory is whereas i feel like we are kind of in the middle and that's not always a great place to be because it can yeah. mean you think you're fine and you're not but I'm I'm generalizing here with very little again no, of ignorance. No, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, but we, we yeah, I think it's okay to think on a thirty thousand foot general level. You don't want to stay there, but I think you have to kind of start somewhere. And that that's yeah, that's super helpful actually. Um, let's we can come back to the race conversation. I, I want to I want to make sure we spend a good deal of time on <laughs> uh, charismatic gifts. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. and I and actually we didn't mention this when we were talking before before the recording, but um, I would love to also have you lay out your view on uh, women in uh, pastoral leadership because, well, for several reasons, um, I, I just think your your pers your perspective on well both those questions uh women in leadership and also charismatic gifts or, or i don't know the term to use sometimes yeah. when i use a term people say oh you obviously come from this kind of tribe i'm like I, I'm, I'm just using a term that comes to mind so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so you, you just recently you went head to head with tom schreiner uh on whether or not the gifts all the gifts are for today or not um can you summarize maybe your main arguments for why you would consider yourself uh, unapologetically, you know, charismatic, you even mentioned, you know, a prophetic word that you received, you know, a few years ago. So in, you know, five minutes or less, can you, can you just lay out your position yeah, sure. on why you believe what you believe? Yeah. So I would say, yeah, so I'd be, I would have, you know, charismatic with bells on, at least in our context. Um, and <laughs> I would, I, I would give, I guess, three main, three main kinds of argument. Okay. So the, the first one is, um, so the surprise of a lot of people is historical. I think the church, uh, historically, the gifts did continue past the New Testament in the sense that you go through the church fathers and it's not until you get to uh, Augustine and Chrysostom in the late 4th and early 5th century that you get any references really to any of the gifts having ceased. That The first 300 years worth of the fathers are, uh, whether you would, they would use the word charismatic or not, they are referring to prophetic gifts and the gifts of people speaking in languages and understanding them and gifts of healing and gifts of even raising the dead. And there would be a, wow. a you get that in Basil, you get it in Oregon, you get it in Irenaeus, you get it in uh, 
quite quite a, a, an awful lot in Augustine as well. Actually, Augustine's interesting because he's sort of yes on healing and no, not really on tongues, which is, makes him an interesting case. But until him, uh, you've got this sort of almost unbroken Cyril of Jerusalem. You've got this almost unbroken chain of, and that's an, uh, of charismatic gifts continuing. Um, Justin Martyr, right in the middle of the second century, through to Augustine. So, um, and I think the historical argument is really fascinating because, generally speaking as Protestants, our church history starts with the Reformation. But when you go back behind it and you go, okay, well, through the age of the fathers, there was a lot of explicit references to the gifts. Um, and actually, if you then continue through what we would call the Middle Ages, both early and late, you would also find a lot of expectation of ongoing revelation. And I'm not saying I'd agree with all of it or the, all the methodology or the theology they drew from it would be mine. Certainly wouldn't. Um, but in terms of healing and revelations through the Middle Ages, you get an awful lot of that as well, if anything, to the point that you would say, that's crazy. And even a modern charismatic might look at and go, whoa, hang on a second, healed by the stigmata or the bones, really? You know, but, it's, yeah. but it was very common. So in a sense, it's only with the Reformation that you get anything that now sounds more like cessationism. And that, to me, comes out of the Reformation, the historic moment that the reformers are saying, We've already got some people in town who claim the ongoing validity of healings and prophecy and apostolic ministry, and they're the Roman Catholics, and that's going to open doors we don't want. So you can see why, but I think that's a, that's really the first time, other than the, the Montanist controversy, you know, the, in the sort of third century, it's the first time you get anything sounding like cessationism, really. And so I think at a historical level, the church, a lot of the church has been, oh, we believe in those ongoing phenomena, and we believe in the gifts, until... The Reformation. So that, that's one argument, and I yeah, would try sure, and make yeah. that case. Somehow. That's a interesting. I've, never, I've actually think, never, I've never heard that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, well, I thought I, that, I, to me, yeah. that's quite a significant. It's a significant feature, and I think what happens is from the Reformation onwards. Of course, you get the double whammy where you get Reformation theology distancing ourselves, kind of always sure. for good. By the way, and I'm not trying to say, and the reformers are wrong. The reformers are no, yeah. to a lot of awful abuses, and that's so I'm totally with them on that. But the, what happens is that then lines up with a you know, the development of the Enlightenment through the 17th and 18th and then into the 19th centuries where a much larger distinction between materialism in the material world and the spiritual world and eventually God gets booted upstairs. Yeah. And miracles become problematic for everybody in the West. And the combination of Protestant objections to Catholic succession yeah. and that sort of thing mixed in with the Enlightenment, I think, creates a context where it's very difficult to argue for or believe the gifts in a western yeah. protestant context but bear in mind most of our majority world brothers and sisters haven't had that issue and therefore right. in many parts of the world you travel it's just glaringly obvious that the gifts are right. for today but no one really asks right. um so that's one kind of argument i think a second is what i would call like a hermeneutical argument is basically when the apostle says when paul says five times use prophecy or eagerly desire prophecy or don't yeah. ban tongues or back you know but pursue prophecy or don't despise prophecy but you test everything and you get five different texts where that's said that the burden of proof is on anybody to me is just on anybody who says that's not an instruction you have to follow rather than on the person who says you should so to me the default should be if a new testament imperative is issued to churches not not to individuals on you know like go and get my coat um, right. from troas <laughs> those, those you know there's some like that where you yeah. go well that's obviously only for that individual but if things are written in multiple different letters to multiple different churches and they're not qualified as something by the context, this is only for you and not for others, then I think we just, we just assume those instructions are for us. So when it says earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, and goes into three chapters worth of detail on how to do that and why, 
then I think you go, okay, well, I just assume that's for us then. So to me, that, and this is with, with Tom Schreiner, we had a great discussion because we're both, I think, quite open. The burden of proof is the key here. But then I think for me, the burden of proof is on anyone who says, this instruction's right. in the New Testament and I'm not going to do it. So do you want to, that's the second one. Well, well, yeah, so I've got a thousand questions. What, get, go ahead and give you a third argument and, I, and I'll try to circle back around. Yeah, back with, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the third is, I suppose, is eschatological which is that when the New Testament talks about the age of the spirit and the age of, you know, your old men will see visions, your young men will dream dreams, even on my servants, men and women, I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. That that phase in history, uh, or the phase of the age of the spirit in which the gifts are given, seems every time the conversation comes up, seems to fill the space between Pentecost and Parousia or between the, you know, the gift of the spirit and the return of Christ. And so, when, so in that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, which in Britain, as probably in America, is often read at weddings, um, yeah. you know, the, if, if I have not loved, then I'm right, just a son right. of God. That chapter, of course, finishes with this, you know, prophecies and tongues will cease. Um, and in that context says, of course, they, when the perfect comes, the imperfect or the partial will pass away. Mm-hmm. And when it talks about the perfect, it talks about the perfect as the return of Christ. When not the, Peter was preaching not- an act, not the huh? completing, not the completing of the canon. <laughs> Don't be such a mystic. You know perfectly well. And, I was and told that. I was told that growing up. And as a right. first year seminary student, I just did a couple word searches. I was like, I don't think this works. I just left hermeneutics class and I learned to do no. word studies. Oh. And, I, and I'm and, applying that to this argument. It just doesn't work. Well, and to sorry, be sorry, fair, sorry. Yeah. I threw you a speedboat, but. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, most of the guys who most there are plenty of good cessationists who concede that is a terrible argument. Okay, and, good. And I think you know, and Tom is like that, and Richard Gaffin and other some really smart cessationists who go, we're not, we're not going to push that. But Tom, I agree Tom with doesn't that. say that. Tom doesn't say that. Okay, good. Oh good. no, no, Tom. In fact, right. Tom has a chapter where I loved it. I mean, Tom's book is marvelous. Like he, this is like I wish all cessationists were like that. You know, okay. He is such a great example of how to do, disagree well, and he has a chapter in the book in which he. Uh, goes through and says here's a bunch of bad cessationist arguments and why you shouldn't swallow them and that's one of them on the list so yeah he would be with you in that um but i think but you have the same thing in acts don't you in the last days i will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy and the last days is a period that as i understand the framework of biblical chronology the last day we are and you and i both done work on one corinthians and you know the the overlap of the ages, but we are in in that sure. sense the last days now. So yeah, the, the first century, the first century is the well. last days. The twenty first century is the last day. The last days yeah. are between Christ event, death, resurrection, ascension, and His second coming. Like those are the last yeah. days between those yeah. two events. That's how I am. And there are, of course, people who don't see that. But I think generally right. the you know when Paul says in the last days there will be scoffers and they will do terrible things, and right. you we would refer to that to the age we're in now. So I think on. All three of those bases, that there's an eschatological expectation that the gifts of the Spirit are between Pentecost and return of Christ. The hermeneutical weight of proof should be on anyone who says you shouldn't follow apostolic instructions that come numerous times to pursue prophecy and other gifts. And then there's a historical argument as well. And so those would be the three main ones okay. for me. And yeah, yeah, we can. Well, okay. So why we don't, uh, and, and, I, and I'm with you on all of those. Um, for me, it was uh, one of my charismatic friends. Back when I was non, well, I was probably just kind of thinking through it. You know, he said, is there any New Testament evidence <laughs> uh, where, you know, where when the spirit is moving, 
that gifts don't follow in the wake. Like, the, like it, the, the gifts seem to come with the New Testament gift of the Holy Spirit. We see it continue on through the book of Acts. We have no um, sort of impression from the New Testament that what the Spirit has began at Pentecost will somehow cease in 90 AD or something like that. Like we just don't have yeah. any New Testament evidence for that. Well, the, the one, so the one cessationist argument I could see some validity in is you do seem to see the gifts of the spirit connected with uh, the apostolic office, or at least the apostles. We have that in, what is it? Uh, is it Hebrews and then second Corinthians where, you know, the apostles were sort of testified to you by these gifts. Mm. Um, I don't have the exact verses, but I'm sure you know what yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. talking about. Can you think yeah, of, help us think through that yeah. argument? Yeah. Um, I think to some degree, I think you go, that's in some ways, that's very much true. Um, in the sense that I, so I've, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's, there needs to be a baby bathwater thing here okay. where in order to see, I would, I, I perhaps might be unusual in, in charismatic circles. I'm not between, I, I do think that the apostles from the, at least the ones we have written, about, we don't know about Bartholomew, right? I, I assume right. or whoever that is. Um, but certainly, you know, Peter and John in the start of Acts and then Paul, there's, a, there's a measure of miraculous accompaniment of their gospel ministry that is exceedingly rare if touched on at all today although that said oh. we don't know that it wasn't rare in the new testament actually i mean luke is probably a lot of people would say luke is giving us something of a highlights reel anyway right. um but i don't know of anybody today who claims that they have healed the entire island of malta for instance of all of their sicknesses, <laughs> which is what happens at the end of the book of acts i don't people claim it but yeah <laughs> and um and so i and i'm perfectly happy to concede that and say okay. yeah i think that's that's true um, having said which, I also don't think there's anybody around today who claims to have planted churches all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but that doesn't mean we don't carry on planting churches. And I don't know anybody whose church discipline strategy involves striking Ananias and Sapphira dead in the middle of a meeting, but that doesn't mean we don't practice church discipline. So in a sense, I think the apostles serve as exception. What's it on the West Wing? There's this line where they say, Ulysses S. Grant works as an exception for every single rule. And I feel like the apostles in some Sometimes okay. they actually can work like that as well, like where you say, well, the apostles are different from you. And well, they're different yeah. in everything. Like there's, sure. That logic would get me to an awful lot of unbiblical places if I didn't yeah. over-apply it. So, so the question so, you've got to so, ask is... Yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, the question you've got to ask is, is there any evidence that there is that gifts are exclusively associated with the apostles? And of course, that's right. where you then look at Acts as a whole and say, no, of course not. They've got loads and loads of people who... In fact, you've got lots of anonymous miracles happen in the book of Acts where you don't have anybody right. attributed with them. It's just Jesus is doing them through ordinary people. You have Philip's daughters who prophesy. You have, you know, all kinds of people. And, of course, the expectation Paul has that miracles are being done in the churches and not only by apostles, yeah. but that there are, is a charismata, you know, charisma of miracles, a charisma of healing. Um, right. The elders in the local random churches James is writing to are expected to be able to anoint people with oil and the sick will be healed. So, it's not like we're seeing a, a narrowness to it. So I right. think the apostles do a lot of healing, but I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that's exclusively associated with the apostles so, and plenty of evidence to suggest it's not. So you're okay with uh, the, uh, a significant magnitude of miracles surrounding the apostles that doesn't necessarily need to be matched today. I mean, you, you, get, you get the impression from, I mean, all the way from Jesus's ministry to 
you know, the apostles that, man, wherever, wherever they were going, like there was just, you know, dead people were just rising up and people were getting healed all over the place. Like that, that's a significant magnitude. So you're okay saying that, that, that yes, the magnitude may have been a first century thing, a unique thing God's doing that doesn't necessarily need to be replicated in the same way. Uh, but that doesn't mean it, it doesn't have that, that we therefore say it's only that all the gifts are just simply limited to, to the first century. Well, I, I, I do. I am saying that. Yes, I think the disparity, yeah. if the, let's say we could establish beyond any doubt that there was a difference in magnitude, that wouldn't bother me in the slightest because okay. I would claim, and I think it's obvious to me that Paul is also a far better teacher than anyone alive today, but that doesn't mean we don't teach and so on. Right. We could do that for many things. Having said which, I would probably, um, I generally want to push at both ends of that, that disparity because I think what can happen is we treat acts as if it was a day in the life when it's not it's a 30 years in the life and it's a actually quite a selective history and i think luke is well aware that he's telling us a series of very significant stories rather than this is what it was normally like i think there are disparities clearly from the named individuals we know even disparities within the 12 where there'd be some who are very prominent in what they are miracles they are working and some who we don't we hear very little about if anything and some of course who are not apostles and who are very prominent like stephen who seems to see a lot of miracles and yet is killed very quickly and is not an apostle. Um, so I think I would push at that end and say, let's not assume that Acts is like, if you were, you know, if you're in the church in Thessalonica, you are seeing uh, whatever it is, Acts four level miracles happening all the time. I don't think we need to, I don't think okay. we know that, okay. but I'd also want to push at the other end and say, and I think if you, but if you would apply the Lucan principle to the 21st century church, and say, right now, let's write a, a history of the last 30 years, but with a particular focus on highlighting the most dramatic things God was doing in global Christianity, you would have a story that did not look very far away from Acts at all. In fact, you have all kinds of, I mean, Craig Keane has done a lot of work on this. Some of the miraculous stories you have, many of which are very well documented, you have huge break. I think what happens is we compare a relatively unimpressive component, which namely, western reformed-ish churches yeah. where who, many of whom don't believe in the gifts anyway and so unsurprisingly you don't see that many and see and compare that with luke as if luke is reporting what's always going on and i, I want to push at both ends of that although i still acknowledge there is probably a gap and yeah. that's what i'd expect there's a gap in godliness and theological acumen and many many other things as well between okay. you. No, no, i've never met anyone who's preached to an unbelieving crowd and seen three thousand people respond and Peter, that's how the book of Acts yeah. starts. So I, but that doesn't mean we don't preach the gospel. Okay. It just means no, the apostles are yeah. better than we are. Let's talk about some of the abuses. And this is where I, you know, grew up very strongly cessationist, almost anti, well, yeah, anti-charismatic pretty much. And, and we always talked about the abuses. And even though I would be, again, I, th I think I told you before, you know, on paper charismatic, I don't, I don't necessarily think I'm the best practicing charismatic, but I still do get nervous, if not a bit, I mean, I'll say it a bit angry sometimes at some of the abuses because that, that yeah. could, you know, for, let me give you an example. So a while back, there was a video going around on YouTube of a very well-known church that, um, you know, they were worshiping and, uh, and, you know, exercising the gifts and all of a sudden, like, um, you saw gold dust coming down from the ceiling. And then you saw, uh, what, what they said were angel feathers coming down from this, from the, you know, and they're videotaping this and everything. Now I, I know, and maybe you do too, that angels don't have wings. They certainly don't have feathers. Um, they are spiritual beings that look like men. They're mistaken for just humans. Um, uh, cherubim and seraphim have, have wings, but they're not messengers like angels are. So I'm, I'm thinking theologically through this. And I'm like, okay, here, theologically, here are the options. 
um, there were pigeons in the rafters. And, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, no, no, don't. Not, I'm sensing like there were pigeons. Maybe chickens got up there. The feathers started coming down, and they were misinterpreted as angel feathers. And I'm like, okay, I'm okay with that. That's 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 totally legit, legitimate. Um, or my only other option theologically is that somebody went up there and manipulated this and then said, this is God, like manipulating the work of God and, and the gold dust, like somebody was actually either God really did sprinkle gold dust on them, or there were some freak accident where, you know, the ceiling, like, I don't know, like maybe there's some freak misinterpretation or there's people that are actually manipulating the work of God, that latter category, which I think is very real and possible to me. I'm like, that's worse. That's like the worst thing ever yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to, 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 to manipulate, to do something which is a lie and say, this is the work of God. To me, I'm like, I'm going to stay clear from that church because lightning bolts are going to start striking. Yeah. Like that's just, that's just not, Oh, well they mean, well, no, 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 that, that read what, I mean, the Bible is yeah. really clear on people manipulating the work of God. They get struck dead. They are false prophets. They are contrary to the gospel. I'm not, yeah. go, I'm not even going to go that far, especially as somebody might know that, church I'm referring to there. I, I, I don't even want to push that beyond just laying out the logic, but you know, as, as I go around and I, the abuses to me aren't just misguided kind of passion in some ways they could be, I mean, manipulating the work of God, which to me is just incredibly dangerous and serious. Yeah. I, I want to say all that and be concerned about that at the same time, still say, no, I, I believe in everything yeah. you said. I believe the gifts are yeah. the, the real gifts are for today we should practice them and pursue them and most churches don't to their to their shame but how do you process kind of some of these yeah abuses, it's a really good know? question um i mean i i first to say i think i'm completely with you on on the uh, i think without knowing the specifics of the circumstances you're talking about certainly i would it would absolutely be 100 with you that if somebody is up in the rafters dropping feathers onto it and then saying this is god that's like that's third commandment territory isn't it that is using the name of the lord in vain that is like you you know you must you must never do this and you be you know fear for your life in the new testament if that kind of that's the sort of thing you're up to so that's not um yeah that's not that's pretty extreme i think if that is what's going on but yeah. i but it's not at all extreme tragically uh to in churches like the churches of my, in my, like mine um, it doesn't happen in my, it hasn't, and nothing like this has happened in my church, but I was just, the other day I wrote a column for, my column in Christianity Today came out, it was on Prophecy, and right. I linked to the article, um, and just said, hey, you know, just to my Twitter people, you know, I've written this thing, and, have a, sure. and a guy who runs a mission organization here in London, uh, he's a really good guy I've met, um, he's probably a contemporary of mine, and he responds to the, to the tweet, not, you know, against me at all, just saying, yeah, okay, great what we also need is the kind of, I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically he told a story about how in that, with that sort of gift of prophecy functioning, somebody had come up to him, his son died this year. Uh, and someone had come up to him and said, this is because of your hidden secret sin. God has told me. Now that kind of thing is probably, I don't know about the feathers. I, I really don't know where to go with that, sure. but that sort yeah. of thing, which I can see and know, and I've had, and I've had conversations with, other individuals who've had similar things. You're, you're the child born to you is going to die. Those sorts of, I mean, just horrendous. You think, firstly, even if that was true, why would you even feel the need to say it? Like, right, what on right. earth is edification? Is that going to bring anyone? And secondly, in both of the cases I know of, it wasn't true anyway. So you've got this sort of terrible uh, double whammy of, you shouldn't have said it even if it were, and it's not. Um, and that is sadly not unheard of. And probably many people listening would have an equivalent story of something like that. 
I think right. in this, in some ways, this doesn't help, and in some ways, it does. Like the 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 answer you always have to go back to on any abuse of almost any gift, whether it whether even if you whether you acknowledge it's a gift or not, the answer you're always falling back on ultimately is this is something you know you can abuse gifts, you can do you can yeah. do sorry um, momentarily as somebody popped in um, you you can abuse anything and that doesn't mean that the gift is bad and right. to be honest you get that with something anything. you get that with alcohol you get that with sex yeah. you get that with food you get it with uh leadership, the bible church leadership, you get it with church, theology, church leadership. You know. <laughs> yeah right so yeah and um, now that's not but i'm not using that as a get out of jail free, yeah. get out of jail free card because right. there are certain forms of practice that are more open than others to foolishness and charlatanry and i suspect that charismatic gifts are okay like that and i think one reason they're like that is because and piper has a great essay on it called why some spiritual gifts attract unstable people it's a really interesting pastoral reflection and he's wrestled a lot with this because he's probably like you actually charismatic in his theology but hasn't practiced that much and partly is because it's a it's a, an issue that makes it very difficult to lead wisely sometimes and his comment in that is a very helpful little essay where he says there are gifts that incline that the people are drawn to if some of the normal rules that apply to the way you use gifts in the church don't apply to that gift. So if I have a gift of teaching, I go away to seminary, I study, I come back, I teach, people can check whether what I said is right or wrong. The gift of prophecy, for instance, looks like it shortcuts that. And so there's a certain type of person who might well be drawn to use that gift because I can say anything I want to anybody and it looked like it's from God or be valid. And I think that means that some gifts and some of the charismatic gifts attract certain types of people to use them who are more likely to run into some of the issues you've just described than gifts like teaching or leadership because yeah. the process for appraising whether it's good or not are much yeah. more nebulous and i think the way to respond to that as a pastor for me is you just have you have to teach a lot teach very clearly into how we handle these gifts you'd be very generally shepherd the whole church through very clearly it's like this is what's just happened this is what we're going to do about it don't worry it's all yeah. fine but you know that was a little bit weird but but we really believe god is doing this and we want to pursue that you've got to teach biblically all the time you've got to model good stewardship and discernment and you know test everything hold fast to the good just get rid of what's evil yeah i don't think that's an easy fix i don't yeah. think that's a, a i don't think that's something you do on a, on a one sunday and suddenly everyone goes great i get it we can all be charismatic with no problem i think yeah. you have to use wisdom but i think that's true of everything in, yeah. i think that's true of reformed theology i think it's true of as you say, <laughs> church leadership so i i'm yeah. i don't think it's a special case but i do think it's a a kind of issue that will often attract people who might find that kind of advice harder to take. And that does make it more possible. Sensitive. I get that. Uh, thank you. That's probably the best, most nuanced, most uh, uh, aware kind of response I've heard in a long time. So thank you for that. I, oh, and, I and I completely agree that the abuse of a gift doesn't nullify the gift itself. And, and I, yeah, anyway, I appreciate everything you said. I get, here's my one, the one thing I would love is that, people maybe like you or people that are capital C charis charismatic would be, that they would be the ones, you know, calling foul on the abuses. Cause right now yeah. it's primarily just from what I hear from some people that are championing, you know, a charismatic theology, um, maybe more aggressively than I am. Um, they tend, in my experience, they tend to kind of make excuses or kind of like downplay the abuses or they'll just say, well, the abuse of the gift doesn't nullify the gift itself and move on. But like, these these abuses aren't just they're not just well-intentioned people going too far like they're actually working against the gospel or you know because i i get emails all the time from people that grew up in 
let's just say more extreme charismatic context and they lost their faith for 10 years. Yeah. They walked away from Jesus cause they got tired yeah. of being bit by snakes and, you know, ha- having, you know, uh, being prophesied over in, in ways that were unhelpful or, you know, so I mean, like it, it actually can work against somebody's faith in the presence of the gospel, not just a yeah. neutral oh, area totally. of kind of misguided passion. So, um, no, that's super helpful. Um, there was, oh, and, and that is, and I, I do, that is something I, in fact, you know, you, you always walk in a line cause you, you sure. don't want to be continually grumbling either. But I've, I've done that quite a few, about a number. In fact, I just yesterday, I got my, um, you know, I just, the annual statistics came through for our blog. Like, what are the articles most people have read? And I was just going through and just, oh, wow. So, but if you look through our top 10, like several of the top 10 posts were things that I'd written that were, you know, going after particular charismatic groups or churches for particular okay, bad yeah. theological or practical missteps yeah. as I see them or things which are ser- seriously bad. And I guess some, sometimes they're the kinds of things that people circulate and read a lot of. And I do, that is something I feel, I feel really committed to do because I think if you don't do that, people don't yeah. realize that there's a difference between what you're saying and yeah. the crazy thing they've seen on the God channel. It would and actually so I, give more credibility to what you're saying if you do explicitly acknowledge yeah. and denounce the abuses. I think, I, I think you do. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the, the slight pushback I have from my more conservative friends is, that one of the reasons why it is possible and it is even seen as desirable for people to go off into a little group and have no, you know, very wonky theology and bad practice, but lots of apparent power is because so many in the West, and I say this is not so true in the majority world, but so many in the West who are more theologically sharp have gone, we wash the hands of the whole thing and distance themselves and say, we're not going to do that anyway. And so what you have is on both, I think there is a hardening on both sides, but it can be if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, yeah. where people are almost nervous of laying on of hands and yeah. Yeah. praying yeah. for the sick. Like, when did, when did a demon mask get cast out in your church? And if the answer is yeah. never, that's not to do with whether you believe the gifts continue. That's just simply whether the ministry of Jesus continues in and through the church. <laughs> and, and that's where I think probably There's both sides right have to there. ask questions about that and say, am I throwing the other side's baby out with the Bible? And I think both can. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where I appreciate churches that maybe, um, aren't capital C charismatic in how they exercise the gifts, but they are, they're not afraid to raise their hands or lay hands or pray for healing or, or even, yeah. you know, uh, at least explore, you know, demonic oppression. Um, real, real quick, before we leave this, I know, I know we're, we're pushing up against time here, but uh, prophecy, what I, I would let, what's your view on prophecy? Cause I, I you know, I've, I've been, most of the churches I minister in are probably charismatic around that side of things. Uh, some, some would be pretty extreme. And, and so I've been prophesied over, you know, dozens and dozens of times and I would say a very small percentage of those prophesy, prophecies have been kind of meaningful. I would say at least 75% involve a waterfall, which is, I love waterfalls. Um, <laughs> no, no, 100% of them have it's, been. It's surely it's leading you to move to Idaho, right? That's... I know, right? Yeah, that's why I'm here. I saw a waterfall. <laughs> um, 100% of the prophecies have all been positive. Now, I know my wicked heart, and I know there's all kinds of stuff they could have drawn out saying, hey, God's telling me you're dealing with X, Y, and Z. You need to repent. I've never had that. It's always positive. I would say about 95%, so about 75% waterfalls, 100% positive, 95% have been ambiguous in general that, you know, my five-year-old, my, I don't know the age of my kids, my nine-year-old could have, you know, said like, you know, God wants you to know that his favor is upon you and that uh, he, he, he will never let you go. I'm like, is that a prophecy or just kind of like, like my atheist neighbor could have told me that, you know? Um, but there has been 5%, I would say, that they still might have involved the waterfall, been positive, but I'm like, wow, that, 
that clearly seems like that was a a gift, not just <laughs> wisdom. In fact, one of them was uh, in, in London. It was actually at uh, Soul Survivor Church, a, a beautiful Anglican charismatic church. Um, and, and I remember three people independently prophesied over me, said almost the exact same thing, and it came true a, a year later. It was a, a major transition going on in my life. And no, it came true two months later or something. And it was still kind of general, but it was like, man, three independent people sought me out to do this. And I was like, man, that, that, that actually was very meaningful. I, anyway, I'm just, I'm kind of giving too much background, but w- can you help us understand prophecy? I feel like prophecy has yeah. become this very nebulous kind of yeah. concept. There's old Testament kind of predicting the future. If it doesn't come true, then you be, you should be killed. New Testament kind of encouraging words, just kind of general encouragement, but is that an actual spiritual gift? So anyway, what, what, yeah, what's, what is, well, I think, what do we, we believe I, I about I like prophecy? starting where, where Paul does when he's trying to help the Corinthians sit the same issue, which is, Anybody who prophesies to another person speaks to people for their encouragement, consolation, edification. So that might sound like very general, okay. but that doesn't worry me because that's how Paul tells them to process okay. it. That yeah, it effectively, I, that there is, um, and Anthony Fizzleton's got a great definition and he does a lot of work on it in his commentaries and you know, just comes out with this really good definition saying this, I, which I can't quote verbatim, but it's basically, yeah. it, is, it might be prepared, it might be spontaneous. So don't get hung up on it has to be spontaneous. It might well be something that someone could prepare before. But it is a form of di- divinely prompted speech that is not infallible, but that ultimately consoles, conf- encourages, confronts, or edifies the people to whom it's being delivered. Mistakes can be made, so they need to be weighed and tested. And this is just basically going through how does Paul use this word in the Corinthian correspondence? Okay. And as I read that, I think that's basically exactly what I think it is. And that allows for actually quite a lot of bandwidth on the kinds of things that might qualify. So, and when you look in the book of Acts, you actually find the same thing. So the, if you say, think of me a, a prophet in the book of Acts, most people would go to someone like Agabus who predicts right. the famine and they'd say that's prophecy. And it is. But if you look at the other people who are described as prophesying and what they say, you then have Philip's four daughters who prophesy. We don't know what they said. We just know by Paul's definition, it's encouraging, consoling or edifying speech. You have Judas and Silas who are prophets. And what they do is uh, go and, communicate pastoral wisdom really on the application of the jerusalem letter in Acts 15 how are you going to work this through in your context and and everybody goes away feeling encouraged and strengthened um which is quite like paul in 1 Corinthians 14 um you have the group of the prayer meeting in acts 13 then the holy spirit said set aside barnabas and saul so there's a sort of that's general in a way it's very specific in some ways but it's very general in another way because you can't tell whether it's god or not you just decide to do it and then you obey and and that's about calling the church to mission and calling people to be to go to the nations and in a sense i think all of those and probably more besides are all under that rubric of prophecy even in the book of acts so i would expect some prophecy to be directional challenge god's going to do this in your life and you should do this some to be generally edifying consoling comforting speech some to yeah. be predictive there's going to be a famine here and you need to send relief for it um, and, he, and that's even if i was dealing with the apostles and prophets in the first generation given that I'm dealing with people today, many of whom are not, of the, whether they're the same level of gift or experiences there, I think there may well be a whole host of other prophecies which the Corinthians may have been bringing, which required a lot more sifting and a lot more, oh, hang on, is this even true? And that sort of thing. So I think at an abstract level, I would say, I would think prophecy can cover all of those things. And so I would expect there to be a whole mix. Yeah. What I think we probably need to do at pastoral level is to teach people how to, distinguish between the levels of or the kinds of prophecy and even just what checks and balances to put in place so I, an advice i've sometimes used is the bigger the call you're asking somebody to make off the back of the word you're bringing them 
the higher the bar needs to be for you to be sure or them to be sure you're right. So if I'm going to come up to you and say, Preston, I just really believe God's telling me he loves you. I believe that could totally be a prophetic word, not because I didn't know it from anywhere except script, except yeah. spontaneous revelation, but because that may well be exactly what the Holy Spirit needed. I've had words like that over my life where someone's spoken something I know is true, but they brought it at a time where I knew I needed to hear it. Okay. And I go, okay, you might not call that prophecy. That's fine. But for yeah. me, that was the spirit ministering to my soul in that moment. But there's that end of the spectrum right through to really big directional things I've had, like this is the career choice you should make. Or in one case, you you should have another baby and which is what and in the end we we just believe we think we this is such an extraordinary word we believe god's going to provide for us even if we do have a third child given the the, the needs of our older two and mm. when we have and actually we've named him samuel as a result of the prophecy we received so, wow. so yeah. some very big things and some very little things and i feel like the word prophecy in the new testament at least can cover probably the whole spectrum I guess my only, I appreciate that. And uh, as always, it's nuanced and, and thoughtful. My, I guess it, when I, when I hear you say prophecy is, you know, encouragement, what was it? The three things, encouragement, challenge, and, and, and consolation and edification. Yeah. It, it, if it almost, you know, I guess the classic, you know, if everything's prophecy, then nothing's really prophecy. Like, is there such a thing where somebody could encourage me where it's not prophecy <laughs> or challenge well, me I where it's it, not actually that, an exercise of the I gift? Think or it could. I think it could. I think, I, and, and you would, as you know, that you know the, the gift. There is a gift of exhortation or encouragement, which is mentioned in a number of those passages, which is, uh, which is distinct from the gift of prophecy. But I think there's probably overlap. I think the word. I think prophecy, as Paul talks about it, is primarily talking about something which is in the gathered assembly. So I think okay. um, the idea of you know the, the sort of the the private word is probably you'd have to make a hard that's harder to make a case for i think in corinthians at least um okay. i think there's an idea that this is public speech and it's with a view to edifying the people and not just one person ah, although i don't think that means you can't have individual words i think that you do in for paul you know your mission um so i'm not saying that every time someone says something encouraging i call it prophecy and i'm certainly not saying that every time someone uses prophetic speech habits like closing their eyes stretching their arms out saying thus saith the lord that makes yeah. prophecy. it clearly doesn't um but I, but I do think that even though it could sound like a fairly general application of the principle, I also think that's the kind of definition I'd get if I went to Paul. I think I would yeah, go through yeah, and say, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, this is this is prophecy. Isn't it's not like encouragement is the same thing as prophecy, but prophecy should be in that sense encouraging or consoling, which means that if someone says your son died because of your secret sin, you know that's not prophecy, because even if it was true as a statement, which I don't think it was it's still not edifying, consoling, or encouraging, or edifying in any way. So you shouldn't have said it, and it's not prophecy. So, so in some so, ways it helps as a test, but not as a definition. Yeah. So, so my concern my concern that 100% of the prophecies that have been prophesied over me um, are encouraging, you're saying that's actually not a, that's, that's how it should be, in a sense. They, they, I, the I, gift I, of... I, I, I'm not quite saying that. Um, okay. I'm saying it wouldn't concern me that they have been, okay. but I'm not saying they must be, because I think sometimes things can be, I have, people have brought, and it depends on your context. Right? I've been in charismatic churches for 20 years, so I've seen a lot of this. And yeah. sometimes when people bring words, they can have, they have teeth and they can be challenging, oh, but good. they are yeah. edifying. And, you know, and as you would know, that, you know, the nuances of paraclesis are, are not just, this makes you feel better. They are right, yeah. strengthening, coming alongside, fortifying, and they may not necessarily, they give you courage. They may not necessarily yeah. be saying they're there. They may be saying, you do need to pull your finger out here and do something different. Um, but I think that encouragement and edification in the sense of the New Testament sense of being strengthened and fortified and built up 
is an acid test for whether or not this is godly. And if it's none, not those things, then it isn't promising. Yeah. Andrew, I'm, I'm worried about your time here. Yeah, we got to go. I, I wanted to talk about uh, women in leadership because I think you have a very, uh, really compelling perspective on that. But uh, th- uh, w- one quick word. So you're, you got a book coming out next month, I believe, Spirit and Sacrament, an invitation to you charismatic worship. You charismatic, a word coined by... Dr. Andrew Wilson. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You, in fact, the way you said doctor there was like the way that Tommy Lee Jones says it in uh, The Fugitive when he goes, you refuted his name as Dr. Richard Campbell. Yes. Ah, um, nice. I have a book called Spirit and Sacrament, which is really exploring a lot of the things we've just been talking about, okay. but, but also um, if, also pushing for the, for the fusion of the, the sacraments that, you know, and a historical, liturgically rooted, self-consciously Catholic practice alongside a charismatic expression, which right. I think is quite unusual. And I would love to see much more common in the church at large, where you are both self-consciously yeah. Catholic and big yeah. church vision, historic roots, liturgy, sacraments. And you confuse that together with the charismatic gifts, the power, the expectation that Jesus is actually alive and is going to answer the prayers, a belief in angels and demons, all the rest. So I think those two can come together. And that's what I've written the book to try and persuade people on. Looking forward to it, Andrew. Thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. And we got to have you on again to, to talk about the, the women in leadership thing. Yeah, I ran out of the yeah. clock on that. Sorry. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. Thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to be here. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Theology in the Raw. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And again, if you support the show, then you get uh, lots of free goodies like pod- uh, Patreon only podcasts and free access to events like the Justin Lee conference uh, on uh, March 10th of this year. Thanks for listening to Theology in the Raw. We will see you next time.